The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, chapter 14, beginning at the first verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you were invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Let's pray. Loving God, may my words and the thoughts of our, all our hearts and minds Transform us by your Holy Spirit to be people who move with grace in the world that you love. Amen. Well, humility is a confusing concept, don't you think, in our highly competitive world that is so influenced by hubris. Comparing ourselves with others to get ahead is culturally ingrained while giving preference to others is often seen as a weakness. Moving with grace can often feel very countercultural. As we explore today's reading, I hope we can gain a clearer picture of how we can move with grace as we better understand humility. What humility meant to Christians in the first century and what humility means in our culture today. Could it be that to move with grace and have momentum as a follower of Jesus, we need to take on a posture of humility? Is that what Jesus means when he says, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted? Today's reading has four parts. The opening sentence sets the scene. Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath. This wouldn't have been a casual catching up after 
church. No, the Sabbath meal would have been meticulously prepared according to the Sabbath laws and the the laws around food preparation. Last week, we saw Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he healed a woman who was um, bent over and unable to stand up straight. He healed her so that she could stand up and look out. Now, Jesus is going to the house of a leader on the Sabbath and he's being watched closely. Not as in curiously, like they're really interested to see what he did, but rather scrutinizing his every move in judgment. Then we have the account of Jesus encountering a man with dropsy. In the updated NRSV, that word dropsy, which only occurs here in Luke's Gospel, is actually, um, they use the word edema. So if you can imagine, best guess is that this man had edematous limbs. Jesus heals him. Luke often pairs his stories. So like the woman that we encountered last week, this man doesn't ask for healing, but Jesus approaches him, heals him, and then sends him away and says to the Pharisees, is this lawful? Keep in mind it's the Sabbath. Would you not restore your child or ox to safety on the Sabbath? And they had no reply. Then thirdly, Jesus is also watching the Pharisees closely. He observes them taking their seats before the meal and he proceeds to tell a parable about a wedding banquet and it goes something like this. Now, I was actually going to ask people to move. I was going to say to Roger, who's sitting in the back seat, why don't you come and sit forward in the front seat? I'm not going to ask you to do that, Roger. But I'm going to say why don't you come and sit up the front? And I was going to say to someone like Steve and Jill, look, if you wouldn't mind just um, popping down the back, that'd be great. But I'm not going to do that because I thought if I chose to tell the story that way, it might kind of imply that actually these front seats here that are completely empty except for Stuart are actually the most important seats and they are not. They... Neither are the back seats the least important. Every seat is just as important as every other seat. So I won't use that object lesson. But at the wedding feast, it was different because there were rules around where you sat. And Jesus watched, as Jesus watched the Pharisees closely, he observed that there were those that liked to take the most important seat. And then finally in our reading, Jesus provides some commentary on the parable. Jesus said to the Pharisee hosting the Sabbath meal, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers, your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours in case they may invite you in return. In which case, you would be validated for your generosity you'd be repaid. Jesus says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. You will be validated through grace. 
you will be graced with worth as your invitees will be, you'll be graced with worth for love's own sake. Because these people cannot repay you, they will be repaid, and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is Jesus unpacking how to move with grace in a posture of humility. This image of the wedding banquet is really important in Luke and the next dozen or so verses in the chapter go on to talk more about the wedding banquet, but that's for another time. While the house of a Pharisee is the specific context for this reading, there is a broader context that undergirds the whole of Luke's gospel. The honour-shame paradigm governed social interaction in the first century in Greco-Roman culture. One's purpose in life was to move from a place, away from a place of shame to a place of honour. But Jesus consistently taught that God shows compassion to the meek and the humble and challenges the arrogant. In the kingdom of God, we don't need to earn status in God's sight because in Christ we are already welcomed in the highest regard. We are welcomed as equals. Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate turning upside down of honour and shame. Death on a cross was the most shameful of criminal deaths. Resurrection restores honour not only to Jesus, but to all who choose to follow him and participate in his risen life. In his book, Humilitas, ancient historian and theologian John Dixon draws insights from the influence of humility in an honour-shame culture and reinterprets them for our Western culture. Humilitas is the Latin for the Greek word that's used in Luke, and it means to put down or to crush. It actually wasn't till late, very late in the first century, that humility was described more widely as a virtue. So humility in Luke's gospel was a willingness to forego status, to give up the opportunity to receive honour as a way of earning merit. In a culture where the aim of the game was to avoid shame at all cost. Jesus broke the formula. He broke the pattern. He loved the lowly, those who had been crushed and gave them a place of honour because they were loved. Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And it's actually hard to find parallels to that kind of writing in the secular writings of the um, first century. And then it raises a question, if crucifixion was the most shameful place, were there some that wondered whether perhaps Jesus wasn't as great as we thought? Or is it an opportunity to redefine greatness? If the greatest underwent crucifixion, disregarding his status 
and then being highly ex exalted to the place of being equal with the Father, what does that have to say for those of us who choose to follow? So humility might be described in a few different ways. Perhaps knowing your skills and gifts and redirecting them for others. Humility has the connotation of service. Humility is holding power loosely for the sake of others. John Dixon defines humility as the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And I think in this definition we see that we're not being asked to be less than who we really are, but we're invited to appropriate all that we have to offer for the sake of others rather than building ourselves up. Then John Dixon gives six ways that we might cultivate humility. We need to consider what we love because we are shaped by what we love. And if it's status, we'll be shaped by that pursuit. Perhaps we can reflect on the lives of those we know and recognize as living lives of humility. And then we need to think about the way that we think because our actions will emerge out of that. So he says, conduct thought experiments to enhance humility. How does your way of thinking lead you to act with humility? Invite criticism. Wow. He says that's important if we're going to cultivate genuine humility. And then he says, get on and do your life and forget about being humble. So he makes clear that humility is not having low self-esteem. It's not groveling. It's not seeing yourself as less than you really are. And it's not losing your distinct gifts. Instead, humility recognizes that our inherent worth, humility recognizes our inherent worth and seeks to put to use whatever we power we have at our disposal for the good of others, on behalf of others. Some of the world's most inspiring and influential leaders have been people of immense humility. Perhaps somebody comes to mind for you. By embracing humility, we can transform for good the unique contribution that each of us makes to the world. And ironically, John Dixon's conclusion is that humility is a mark of leadership. The most influential and inspiring people are often marked by humility. In the Pharisees' house, leadership was marked by having the best seat in the house. In the kingdom of God, leadership is marked by being a person who demonstrates and lives out genuine humility. 80s business researcher Jim Collins also identified humility as a key mark of the most effective leaders. He cites examples of CEOs who know the names of their staff and can chat with them, perhaps about their interests or their, their families in the tea room, or industry bosses who walk the, the factory floor and identify with the people who work in the organisation. I think of school principals and school leaders who get out and about in the playground, in classrooms, in staff rooms, 
and chat with students and staff. Collins coined the phrase level five leaders for the most effective leaders. And level five leaders, he says, display a powerful mixture of personal humility and indomitable will. Personal humility is not a place of weakness. Personal humility is a strength that allows us to have the commitment and the perseverance and the clear intent to work towards what it is that we consider important. I think Jesus was a level five leader. As I said at the beginning, humility doesn't come naturally in our culture. There's a lot of confusion around what it is. To grow in humility, I think, we need to be healed of those things that weigh us down and bend us in on ourselves. Because it's only when we can look up and out and at the people around us that we gain a realistic perspective of ourselves in the context of others. When we become less self-absorbed, we're able to focus on others. When we have an inflated view of ourselves, we don't see others as they really are. A posture of humility releases grace and a capacity to see others more generously. When Jesus healed, people were freed from their shame. I think one of the wonderful achievements of our time is the liberating, well, it's still a, a journey, but we're on a journey of liberating people with disabilities to a place of equality. That is, a person need not be considered less than by virtue of a physical or intellectual incapacity or difference. In the weekly meal that we share together, there is no hierarchy and no special place at the table. At the table, we are honored by each other's presence. All are welcome. All are worthy of their place. No more, no less than the other and are welcomed by our host, Jesus. And more than that, we're free to invite those who can't reciprocate, those who can't pay, those who can't see, those who can't use the usual means to justify their place at the table. And this is grace. Social scientist Brene Brown published her research about the nature of emotions in her recent book, Atlas of the Heart. She has a chapter called Places We Go to Self-Assess. And in this, she describes humility, pride, and hubris and distinguishes between them. And I think it's helpful to note that there is a thing that is a healthy pride in, in being called to be all that we are, we need to take pride in our particular giftedness, our personality, the things that we have to offer the world. There's something healthy about that. But to avoid going into the arena of hubris, we need to keep a realistic perspective. Be open to criticism. Be open to being aware about how we engage with others. In a previous chapter in, the, in her book, Renee writes about places we go when we fall short. Shame 
self-compassion, perfectionism, guilt, humiliation, embarrassment. Perhaps we encounter all of these emotions in today's reading. What she's saying is that humility is finding that healthy place where we're not too much, but we're not too little. That we find the place where we can be who we are. We've been shaped so much by unhealthy cultural and religious paradigms that include hubris and competition. But Christians have the opportunity to take on humility with Christ as their example. It's not mentioned in today's reading, but the humility of repentance allows us to move with grace when we come to God honestly about how it is with us and our engagement with others. Because sin is not so much broken laws as broken relationships. Those things that have betrayed love and trust with ourselves, with God and with others. When we come to God and repent of those things, we find ourselves healed and restored and able to stand up straight and to look out and to see others and to see ourselves in healthy ways. I was looking for a practical example to close with of what humility looks like today and now. And as I read Jackson's interview, his Q&A with Michelle MacDonald, our uh, editor of Focus, the diocesan magazine, which you received the link to in your inboxes on Friday. Jackson's answer to her question, how does your faith inspire you and shape your outlook, life choices and character? Jackson responded, I believe my faith journey has encouraged me to see the best in everything and everyone to view the world we live in as one established by relationship and connection everywhere and to see beauty in all things. May it be so for us. Amen. With the worship band.